Welcome to the Gasps from a Dying Art Form podcast, where I talk about the history and philosophy of tap dance and things that are tap dance adjacent. If you like the show, please become a supporter on Patreon. Half of all profits go to the Mad Rhythms Tap Academy at the Harold Washington Cultural Center in the historic Bronzeville neighborhood of Chicago's South Side. Who's the one who invented tap? Were they white or were they black? Did it start in the Caribbean? Or do we not trust that European? Some of them I do. Can't you see all this history? Is killing me. Why don't we start on three? Why do we start on four? I know it's hard to grasp, but it's a gasp from a dying art form. Hello, and welcome to the Gasps from a Dying Art Form podcast. I'm your host, Tristan Bruins, and we have quite a program for you today. This is maybe the most exciting program we've ever done. We have, as a guest, author Jim Siegelman, who is the co-author of the classic book, The Book of Tap, with co-author Jerry Ames. A little bit about Jim Siegelman. Jim Siegelman graduated from Harvard with honors in both philosophy and English and was awarded the Fisk Fellowship at Trinity College, Cambridge. His articles have appeared in the New York Times, Playboy, and Harper's Weekly. Together with his partner, communications expert Flo Conway, they have been studying the human consequences of new communication techniques and technologies for three decades. Conway and Siegelman are perhaps... Most well-known for their initial collaboration, 1978's Snapping, about the psychological epidemic of people experiencing sudden personality change due to the manipulative techniques performed by America's religious cults and mass therapies. The same year, the Jonestown Massacre, a mass suicide led by cult leader Jim Jones in Guyana, South America, made Snapping incredibly pertinent to then-current events, garnering the authors a large number of speaking engagements and media appearances, including The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. Other works include 1982's Holy Terror, about the rise of the fundamentalist Christian right, and how they are able to generate power and garner influence in politics through closed-loop fundraising techniques across a vast array of communication networks, and Dark Hero of the Information Age, in Search of Norbert Wiener, the Father of Cybernetics. About Norbert Wiener, ex-child prodigy and brilliant MIT mathematician who founded the science of cybernetics, igniting the information age, explosion of computers, automation, and global telecommunications. These three books are currently available with a new, updated edition of Snapping through their own publishing company, Stillpoint Press. And if these sound interesting to you, I highly recommend picking them up and the place to do that is at stillpointpress.net. And there will be a link to that in the episode notes. Before the team of Conway and Siegelman, there was the team of Ames and Siegelman, 
who co-wrote 1977's The Book of Tap, Recovering America's Long Lost Dance, which explores the history and philosophy of tap from its folk beginnings up to the late 1970s, and includes quotes from prominent tap dancers and artists of the day, a look at the influence of Hollywood on tap, discussing the rising trend of ballet-infused tap dance, and the rise of the tap company format. There is also an instructional technique section at the end, which qualified it for my series titled The Hidden Histories of Tap Dance Histories, a look at the continual reshaping of tap history as found in the instructional syllabic tap dance books meant for use in the home, at the dance studio, and in some cases, in, in educational institutions for all ages. The Book of Tap is like a time capsule of tap history, and in my opinion, one of the classic works written about tap dance, and a very important influence on other tap dance historians, being mentioned and quoted in both Constance Vallis Hill's Tap Dancing America, A Cultural History, published in 2009, and Brian Siebert's What the Eye Hears, published in 2015. Vallis Hill, in a short piece in the Oxford University Press blog named Jerry Ames's The Book of Tap as one of only three histories that include a comprehensive look at tap dance. I'm sure she forgot Mr. Siegelman's name on accident. The other two books being Marshall and Jean Stearns' Jazz Dance and, of course, her own book. Like nearly every tap dance book ever written, there are parts that brought me to elation, connecting me with the voices and opinions of tap dancers of the past from before I was born, <laughs> and has even changed my perspective about tap dance and led me on a bit of soul-searching, asking the question, what is happiness? There are also sections that I have concerns about and questions about, and we will get into all of that, but first, allow me to introduce my guest, author Jim Siegelman. Jim, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Tristan. It's a pleasure to be here. I want to thank you for uh, finding the book of tap and all your efforts to bring it to your audience. Uh, and just as an intro, I have to tell you, this is the first media request I have had on the book of tap in 45 years. <laughs> Incredible. Incredible. Well, I first bought the book years ago and I forgot about it because I went, I was going just on eBay buying anything tap dance. Like in my early twenties, I was, you know, I'm a comic book collector as a child. So that kind of came to tap dance. So I'm on eBay. I'm looking up, you know, buy me a tap shoe from Japan. Get me like, you know, a Fred Astaire poster from South Africa. And then like, what are all the books available? Well, I found the book of tap. I'm like, well, I'd never heard about this. And so I kind of put it away and I didn't read it right away because I got a bunch of books. But then... How long ago was that? Oh, that was probably like a decade ago. Is when that makes I first... sense. I'm glad you could find a copy. Well, there, there are still some circulating around if you want to pay a little bit of money for them. But then also the Book of Tap, I'm sure you know, is also on archive.org. Uh, yeah, I tried to find that. I couldn't find it. If you can send me a link, I'd love to see it. Yeah, I'll do it. It's kind of tricky. Sometimes you can find it on a search engine, but sometimes you have to go in there and play around with the keywords. There's a couple books that I have to type it in specifically to find. Um, but yes, I have yours saved so i can just send that to you immediately and your computer didn't crash and the uh the chinese didn't take over your uh your laptop at the time that you went to that link not yet not yet but i'm still i'm still waiting because 
to be honest, I've got a pretty cheap computer. So whatever they might send me, you know, it might be a little quicker than mine. But really, literally, uh, when when the Book of Tap came out, which was uh, beginning early, January, February of uh, 77, I got my first copies of Flo. My co-author, Flo Conway, and I were out on the West Coast uh, immersed in research on the cult phenomenon that was sweeping America and this uh, and this phenomenon of sudden personality change we came to call snapping. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I wasn't exactly here when we published. But literally not one thing. I, there might have been a notice in Publishers Weekly, but I don't recall one review. I didn't get one request to talk about the book uh, and literally this whole time. So this is quite a trip for me, and uh, uh, it's a pleasure to speak with you. Well, the pleasure is all mine. So before we get into the Book of Tap, I do want to ask you a little bit about uh, your other work. Yeah. and uh, Sure. Because uh, – I've probably edited it down to just mostly be about the Book of Tap, but I do have a Patreon subscription, and so I might leave in, you know, some extra bonus content for... I've got two patrons supporting me right now, so I'm sure they'd be interested to hear about the other work, too. So I'm interested to, to know, in Snapping, how did, how did you and Flo... How did that come up in conversation? Were you having lunch together one day and you both were like you know what's crazy cults let me tell you about the background of snapping because it's it's tied neck and neck to the work in book of tap flo conley and i met i got back i was at harvard as a philosophy major and then i had a year at uh, cambridge at trinity college where i read philosophy there uh, i also uh, wrote for the harvard lampoon uh, as an undergraduate and performed with the cambridge footlights which was their musical comedy review when i was at trinity um, and I had just been back from the U.S. about a month and a half, two months, and was looking for work in New York when uh, I heard about the uh, revival of Harper's Magazine's historic weekly called Harper's Weekly. I don't know if you've ever heard of it. Harper's mm-hmm. Weekly was was a historic publication in the U.S. from around 1856 until 1916. And it was known as the voice of the abolitionists. In the run-up to the Civil War, Harper's Weekly led the way. Uh, with his articles and with the uh, etchings at that time, uh, and it died in 1916 around World War One when the big news weeklies and uh, photo reviewers came in. But uh, in 1974, uh, people at Harper's decided they were going to revive the old Harper's Weekly as an experiment in uh, in uh, reader participation journalism. And Flo was hired as a managing editor, uh, bringing her knowledge of communication and systems from her work on the Saturday Evening Post and uh, a few years before that, where she was the editorial production manager, and from her graduate work in communication at the University of Oregon on the West Coast, where she did her master's work and some doctoral work. And uh, she brought all these ideas back to Harper's Weekly to try to devise a, a, a publication that could publish every week and cover the country, literally. And we broke ground at the weekly. Uh, I broke the first story on the threat of aerosol sprays to the uh, ozone layer of the earth. Uh, I did a piece on chimpanzee language experiments that were going on where chimpanzees at uh, 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 primate preserves and universities were being trained to speak sign language. And around that time, just after I started work at the weekly, where I was also the arts editor, the humor editor, and the science editor, we had a very small staff, 
We worked it uh, uh, out of folding director's chairs. I had the only electric typewriter on the staff, but uh, we were putting in 60, 70 hours a week at the weekly. And around that time, my, ag my agent called me and said, you want to write a book? I said, uh, sure, I got nothing to do. And he told me that he had <laughs> met with Jerry Ames. Uh, my agent was very active on Broadway in, in production of, uh, of theater and musical comedy. And uh, he met Jerry and he said, maybe you have a book here. And he uh, had some talks with the uh, editor, David Courier at David McKay. And uh, they said, let's do this book. There's this big tap revival going on. And so my agent called me and I said, look, I can do this, but I can only do it in my spare time. So uh, literally, the Book of Tap was written Saturday mornings over about six months. Wow. And uh, I, al I also decided once I met Jerry and uh, got to know him and uh, visited his studio, Act, Act 48, just off Broadway at East on West 48th Street. And I said, I'm going to take your classes. He was His classes were filling up not just with traditional uh, dancers and aspiring dancers and actors who still had to have some tap dancing under their belt to have any chance to get a job on Broadway in a musical. But now he was getting suburban housewives coming in from New Jersey. And all these reports of mostly suburban housewives, young urban women mostly, who were finding tap dancing. And uh, this great revival was going on. And uh, our, our editor at David McKay said, look, at, we got to write a book about this. It should be informative, have some history, be entertaining. Uh, Jerry, you're an important figure here. You're going to give them some tap instruction. And my job was to research the history of tap from what I could find, write this up. And also, uh, as I was learning to do at Harper's Weekly, which was contact everybody who was around living, you know, still living from the golden age of tap, people on the cutting edge, people in modern dance and ballet to get their views on where this was going. That was what Flo and I were pioneering at Harper's Weekly. We wanted to let the uh, readers write their articles and let people speak for themselves. And the journalists would almost stand aside. So I headed off every Wednesday. I would leave work early at the weekly and stand by the elevator and practice my taps and, uh, you know, on the hard marble floors. Yeah. And then I went off to Jerry's studio and took tap every every week for those months, and uh, and then Saturday mornings I would conduct my interviews mostly by telephone. For me, the quotes in the book is what makes it. What's the right word? Like like I want to use the word precious, you know, but not in a condescending way. Like that's the most for me like precious part of the book because not only are there quotes from. Famous tap dance. I mean, you got Buster Brown, and I think Buster Brown definitely. Doctor yep. Jimmy Slide is in there. You got Sam Howard Sims. You got Sandman, right? I was about to say, but then there's also a lot of people who I a lot of tap dancers I haven't heard talk like like Jack Stanley. I've always been interested in Jack Stanley because I see his advertisements in the old dance magazines. And Jack Stanley, uh, Jerry was one of his disciples, and also, mm -hmm. as you point out, and on your podcast, Jerry was a disciple of Paul Draper, and I spent a lot of time on the phone with Paul Draper. Uh, he brought uh, his his views especially about the state of TAP, the death of TAP, and the future of TAP. Uh, but just to put a coda on your question, how did Flo and I begin to get involved in cults? Right. We In cult research, we were at the weekly, and because we were getting literally thousands of uh, incoming articles and inquiries from people all over the country, we had the first line on this new problem of cults that was shaping up worldwide in the early mid-70s. 
uh, especially in the U.S., the Moonies and the Hare Krishnas and um, uh, a lot of, of uh, Indian and Hindu cults, and at the same time, the first Bible cults, the Children of God. So much of this was happening on the West Coast. Uh, and in New York, the Moonies were on the street corners. They were at Yankee Stadium. The Krishnas were at the airports, and the parents were losing their children and hiring this uh, deprogrammer named Ted Patrick to kidnap their kids. And uh, he coined the term deprogramming. And uh, that's where we started covering this. And Flo and I looked at each other at one point and said, this is a very big story. We really want to get out of here and start traveling and and really do something on this. And uh, within that time, I had finished my work on the Book of Tap, and we headed out across the country. And then, so then when you guys write your follow-up book, Holy Terror... I, I like I like reading those two books together because they do seem kind of to bookend each other. No pun intended. <laughs> you know, they're kind of a similar format, but holy terror just, I mean, it takes it to kind of like a whole nother level. Like I almost feel, compared to holy terror, snapping reads as almost lighthearted, <laughs> comparatively, I mean. No, you got a point. I'm snapping, we were out there. Again, we were at the cutting edge of this. There was virtually nothing... Uh, really in the media. Nobody was really inquiring about these sudden changes. And uh, that's when we started interviewing cult members and former cult members, and especially people who had been deprogrammed, most of them by Ted Patrick. And that's when they started telling us when they went into the cults, they told us something snapped. They went through this sudden change of awareness and personality, and they fell into these cult states of mind, which were, for many of them, really ongoing hypnotic trances from from um, meditation and chanting and a lot of the ritual practices of the cults. And uh, Ted Patrick uh, told us the first time we met him, uh, he was in jail for kidnapping out in California at the time. He said, I, he said, when I deprogram these people, it's like a light going on. They snap out of it just like that. And we just kept hearing this word snapping over and over. And, and I think we had a lot to do with introducing that term in that context into uh, the discourse in America. Holy Terror grew out of snapping completely because well, we did a study in the late 70s uh, of, for, of hundreds of former members of the cults. So we had about 48 different cults and uh, four or 500 different people who'd come out of the cults. And what we learned was two-thirds of them were not coming out of these esoteric Eastern cults. Mm-hmm. They were coming out of Bible cults and extreme fundamentalist sects in the U.S. And that was exactly the time, 79, 1980, when the uh, Christian right jumped into politics, jumped into bed with the Republican Party, uh, and the rest is history. This is uh, partly why our country is in the crisis it's in now, because the the base of the Christian fundamentalists, uh, they call themselves Christian nationalists now, uh, in the political arena, uh, gave Donald Trump all the support he's needed to attempt to dismantle this uh, this country brick by brick, and they now handed over the Supreme Court to uh, forces that are in complete sympathy with uh, the Christian nationalist view. And that, in a short course, is what Flo and I do for a living the last 30, 40 years. Yeah, I, I felt kind of bad, because as I'm reading Holy Terror, it kind of seems like you guys are really studying a boulder, and not being aware that there's now like a mountain behind it. Does that make sense? Well, we knew we were onto this. Uh, I can credit my co-author, 
she's not only a, a communication researcher, but she's a poet. And her mm. antenna for these phenomena from the time I met, met her at Harper's and she shared her scholarship and communication, which is really the, the, uh, the uh, foundation of all the work we've done. Both those two books are bookends because they start with the first half of investigative journalism and reporting on the phenomena, and then we turn the corner at the middle of the book, and we start a in-depth communication analysis of the dynamics, the manipulations, the control processes, uh, the propaganda techniques, both of the cults and of the fundamentalist right. And uh, uh, we've had great attention for both those books. Snapping came out six months before the Jonestown tragedy, right. and we were the only book out there in '78 when that hit. Uh, we testified in the U.S. Senate. We were on media nonstop. Uh, and then we published Holy Terror. Uh, we started it in 1981, three weeks after Ronald Reagan was inaugurated. And it came out in 82. And uh, so many of the trends that we've seen in the last 40 years uh, have flowed directly from Holy Terror. We knew at the time we were onto something, but as you said, we had no idea how big that, that boulder was going to be. Yeah, because how could you predict social media? Like I, you know, I, I, I'm fortunate, I, I think, well, like you, like we're fortunate to be around pre-internet and now during it. And I never would have guessed as a kid, all this stuff we have now, this was stuff I'm like, if, if we could have this technology by the time I'm like 60 years old, if I could have a touchscreen TV by the time I'm 60 right. years old, then I'll know I'm in the future. If I could have a car shaped like an egg then I know I'm in the future. And now I've got not only a touchscreen phone, but I drive a Prius. So and I'm, and I'm living out. I mean, that's one of the reasons I bought the Prius because it looked like the car I saw at the Epcot Center in Disney World in their future exhibit in like 1995 or something. Clearly I'm talking to George Jetson here. You've arrived. Oh, boy. And you could be my boy Elroy then. But let me tell you uh, one other comment, then we'll get back to tap dancing. But, yes. Uh, the third book we wrote, Dark Hero, The Information Age, which mm -hmm. came out in uh, 2005, was really a labor of love for us. And we consider it the prequel to Snapping and Holy Terror, because uh, when Flo left New York, left the Saturday Evening Post, uh, after she had had her, her first meetings in her office with the Beatles in 1964, wow. when they first came to America, she went out to study communication. And... Uh, she got these tools, Norbert Wiener's cybernetics, uh, esoteric sciences at the time, like information theory, systems theory, and uh, they gave predictive tools, as, as Norbert Wiener used to say. They enable you to see over the fence. So uh, the, the ability to see patterns and project, uh, extrapolate into the future was something that Wiener gave his disciples, uh, that Flo learned when she studied those works, and that uh, she brought to me, my background, as you reported, was in philosophy, which was pretty much a backward science by the time I was studying it at, at Harvard and <laughs> even at Cambridge. they were I considered them obsolete, but I had no idea where to go. Mm. And when I met Flo at Harper's, the first thing she said to me was, boy, you need some new tools. And that's go. really been the basis of all our work. But that was the context in which I set out to do the book of Tap with Jerry. We wanted to get let people speak for themselves. And uh, my only complaint about the book, I love the cover. It's a gorgeous kind of Art Deco cover, but the text is set like those old A.S. Barnes textbooks from yep. the 30s yep. in a 12-point century school book type from a textbook of the 1800s. Mm. Uh, and all those quotes that were so important uh, in traditional book design, the inserted quotes are always set in this tiny type. 
So uh, our goal was to, uh, my goal was to make the book give equal voice to the tappers and the tap revival and to all these amazing historical figures that I tracked down and spoke with. So uh, the inside of the book is kind of a vestigial trade all by itself. But, uh, you know, you've, we've had some pretty good comments for the book, uh, as you brought to my attention. Mm-hmm. Now, here's one thing that I, I really want to set the record straight on. Everybody thinks that Jerry Ames wrote this book. And I know he's co-author. Like when, like when I said the Vallis Hill quote, everybody, you know, she said Jerry Ames's book, The Book of Tap. And not a lot of people mentioned Jim Siegelman. So I'm, I'm really curious, what was the division of labor on the actual writing and research that takes place in the book? The division of labor was I did 100% of the research <laughs> and 100%, 100% of the writing up to page 122 through yep. chapter 7. Where and the Jerry took over at, at chapter 8 for the instructional part. But I did meet with Jerry, and I came to this cold from my background, and th- this was all new to me. I, was, I didn't know anything about dance at the time. I can tell you later, I learned a lot by very circuitous routes. But uh, I had to pretty much accept Jerry's historical overview and his take on this. Um, and uh, I met with him several times. I'm really sorry he's not here to be on this interview because he was just a lovely man. He was this gentle guy. He loved tap dancing. He was the only white tapper in the Hoofers show yep. that opened off Broadway and then on Broadway. Mm-hmm. So uh, he was pretty accomplished. But he was a gentle guy, and his view of tap was very gentle and and because of his influences of uh, of Draper and Jack Stanley, that balletic direction that he saw tap going was probably one of the themes that came up in the book quite a bit. But uh, Jerry was great. The other thing about Jerry, which I have to tell you, yeah. uh, one of the ways I was introduced to him and what he bragged about, beside being the only white dancer in the hoofers, was that he claimed he held the Guinness Book of World Records at that time for the fastest tapper he said he could do he, he told me he could do 85 taps in five seconds. And at the time, I did a little background checking these last couple of weeks. Uh-huh. Uh, that's right in the ballpark. I didn't find his name in the Guinness Book of World Records uh, website and archives, but there were tappers back then who were tapping 65 taps in five seconds. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was one around who hit 97. So Jerry was in that ballpark, and I went down to his apartment one time to work with him, and he showed me how we did it. He jumped off a chair and did what he called five double-wing pullbacks off the yeah. chair, and that's how he claimed he uh, he hit 85 or maybe 88 taps in five seconds. Okay. But uh, he was just a gentle guy. He was not a, uh, a rocket scientist, but he was a tapper. But I just think it's interesting that because his name's first on the book and that he's the tap dancer, I think the popular opinion is that, you know, he is responsible for a lot of the history stuff like the book reads like if you're a, a serious like a, like a hardcore tap dancer you know you're aware of these different streams of thought and it seems like some people are confused why another tap dancer would choose certain avenues to write about but it makes a lot more sense when it's you writing the book and doing the research and then having one individual tap dancer as kind of your landline to the community. Does that make sense? Uh, sure, absolutely. But as I say, Jerry guided my initial 
perspective on TAP, which uh, you pointed out some of the strengths and some of the weaknesses of our well, views in the book at the time. But uh, I did everything I could with all the tools at my disposal to dive into the history and the uh, and the future and the present and the future of TAP and to interview as many people as I could find. I was really delighted to get a uh, to get Hermes Pan on the phone out in in Hollywood oh, to talk incredible. about his work with Fred Astaire and uh, talk to Fred Kelly, Gene Kelly's brother, mm -hmm. just across the river in New Jersey, uh, where the tap revival was going on there. He mostly taught little kids, and then suddenly their mother started coming in, and he had classes full, just the same way Jerry did, of uh, of white suburban matrons and young young women in their 20s and 30s who found this as a form of exercise and entertainment. Uh, so uh, I think the one thing we have to do, let me make a comment or two, if I can, sure. about your, I, I spent uh, yesterday and the day before with your podcast, with your three podcasts on the book. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, my first response was that this is really humbling and hilarious. <laughs> well, I, I good. I think that's good. Maybe. Well, because you really did uh, point out uh, a lot of you, you give credit where it's due and you point out uh, a lot of the history that obviously I wasn't privy to at that time. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I told you when you first made contact and you were going to do this, I said, OK, take your best shot and let me have a little talk with you when we're done with this. Uh, I didn't know that you would practically, you know, call me a white supremacist in this book in the initial context. But uh, yeah, you made, yeah. you know. But there were, you know, there were real concerns. We'll go back to the 70s in a minute. But I also want to make the point that um, uh, I was, uh, you know, the the, uh, the shots you take across my bow. I have mm. a few comments that I jotted down. You know, you say the history of the book is true-ish, mm. and you uh, you do point out that uh, our uh, our take on the tap dancing and the twin strains of white and black influences and how they came together. You said it was perhaps not indicative of malicious intent. Um, we talk about the twin streams. Yep. And uh, so you give us credit for that, and I thank you for that. Uh, but you talk about our predictions uh, in the last chapter about the future of TAP. You say there's some real doozies here, but then you acknowledge that three out of our four predictions have turned out to be true. And uh, uh, over 40 years, 50, 45 years, I'd say that's the flipping prophetic by today's standards. Yeah, I was but, uh, I was blown away. I was like, "Wow, yeah, he he he's got our number pretty good." Like the rise of the tap company, you know. I think a lot of tap dancers now they just always assume there's like twenty people, you know, groups of tap dancers going around doing tours and shows and stuff. But that was not the case. Tap dancers were kind of in groups of you know, usually a solo or groups of two, three, maybe four. But there weren't tap companies like there were today. And Jerry Ames had the, I, I, I might be mistaken, did he have the first tap company? Uh, I believe, uh, yeah, I believe so. I mean, Letitia James's Tap Happenings and the Hoofers uh, were on Broadway, but it wasn't really a company. It was just an ensemble at the time. Uh, people pretty much soloing and uh, and doing their uh, their different competitions with each other. Oh, sure. But uh, what I, yeah. what what I wanted to do, uh, Tristan, was to really take you back because you do make these comments and I'm oh, being a partly tongue in cheek here when you say that we had no malice and you would do acknowledge that uh, you have the privilege of hindsight on this. Uh, but generally, this is you said this is a well-researched book with no chronological errors and your highest praise was that it's not a bad tap history, you said. 
No, I but mean, I want to take you. And of course, compared to what was available at the time, and we Absolutely. say from the benefit of hindsight, but also from the benefit of me having the internet. I mean, I can't repeat that enough. I because when I read any book pre two thousand. You know, or any book pre like mid '90s, I have to constantly remind myself they couldn't just look up anything at the drop of a hat or at the push of a button. So I, I, I just want to repeat that again for all the listeners. Yeah, no, I spent my Saturday mornings uh, on the phone and traveling around to do interviews, but most of them were at the New York Public Library and especially the New York Public Library for the Performing Arts at Lincoln Center. And those are my sources. That was prob- They were probably the best uh, archival material available anywhere in the country, maybe in the world, on tap dancing. We'll get back to that in a second. Sure. But I, I do want to take you and your yes. audience back to the 70s and do a little time travel here. And look at this period when I was researching and writing and the whole concept of the death of tap and the tap revival uh, was in the air, or at least brought to me by... Jerry and and um, and our editor, um, the '70s really was a dead zone. Uh, if if you came of age in the '60s as I did, you were part of one of the most exciting times in in American history, depending on your point of view politically, I suppose. But you had the civil rights movement, you had the anti-war movement, you had the explosion of uh, rock and roll and the British invasion and all the music of the '60s. Uh, you also had uh, a consciousness explosion, as they called it, in the human potential movement and Esalen Institute. And in the sciences, you had this explosion of new knowledge, uh, mostly what Flo brought to me, new sciences that were revolutionary in their own way, like cybernetics and the other ones I've mentioned. Um, and as you know, from your work with Thomas Kuhn and the structure of scientific revolutions, uh, those, those, those sciences and those revolutions have their own uh, form and their own life, really, that takes place in them. And the first thing that's really important to do in the history of science or the history of TAP is you have to put your mind back in the era of that moment. Uh, you know, when you're studying the Greeks, uh, you have to go back before Copernicus. And when you're studying Galileo, you have to go back before Newton. Uh, the, the rest of science, you have to go back at that demarcation point uh, before Einstein and Bohr, and you have got to be able to put your mind back in that era. And with that preface, I'll say when I set out to look at tap dancing, tap dancing was dead. There had not been a major innovation or even uh, performance in tap for for almost a, for over a generation, as I said in the book. When tap died in the 50s for the reasons that we cite, uh, it was dead. Tap dancing, <laughs> let's put it this way, Tap dancing was not exactly a cutting-edge figure in the 60s revolutions. It was not at the forefront of the civil rights movement, and yeah. tappers, were not in, tappers were not in Grant Park in 68, you know. Um, but there were blues singers, and there were, people were singing the blues, and blues was part of the whole rock and roll revolution. Uh, and I had spent a lot of time in high school when I grew up. I grew up in Cleveland, and I was part of the Cleveland garage band scene. I played in rock bands as a keyboard man. And uh, in 69, um, the, the big brother of my lead guitarist was at University of Michigan at Ann Arbor, and he brought together the first blues festival in, in the world, certainly the first blues festival in America. And John Fischel went to all the old blues singers that he brought, the Delta blues singers from from the Mississippi Delta and down in New Orleans and all up to Mississippi. And he spent a lot of time 
on the west side of Chicago in the blues bars there. And uh, Jim and I, John's brother and I, were on the artist committee at the Ann Arbor Blues Festival in 69, the first one. And we spent those weeks when everyone else was at Woodstock on the East Coast. We were in Ann Arbor palling around with B.B. King and Muddy Waters and Howlin' Wolf and Big Mama Thornton and and Mississippi Fred McDowell, who we, we became really good friends. And so what we learned, though, was that these old black singers had been picked up first by Elvis in the 50s and sure. then by Lennon and McCartney in the 60s and, and by uh, Mick Jagger and Keith Richards, you know, and they brought this black music to young white audiences. And at Arbor, there were 40 or 50 acts. There maybe was one white act or maybe two. There was uh, Charlie Musselwhite from Chicago uh, was white. and, um, and uh, Buddy Guy, was he there? Buddy Gallo, they were all there, but the younger people, but there was nobody. There were 15,000 people in the audience, and there was probably at most a handful of blacks who had come up, and we found this really interesting. And just like with Tap, the young black black artists were not that interested in their historical roots. Uh, You could see this. uh, There were Buddy Guy and Junior Wells were two of the younger black blues singers, and uh, from the west side of Chicago, we had Luther Allison and Jimmy uh, Dawkins. But other than that, the, the blues revival of the late 60s had, had entirely been a white phenomenon. And when we set out to research tap, when I set out to research tap dancing, I found something similar. Young tappers were not black. They were white suburban housewives and young white women. And um, even when I talked to, uh, to all the old hoofers I found with Sandman Sims, Jimmy Slide, uh, I think I talked to John Bubbles, uh, Honey Coles. These people were talking about their history, yeah. which was the streets of Harlem and at the Hoofers Club up on 131st, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, but they were not even aware themselves of any of the issues that you raise in your podcast, which is interesting. There was not that kind of awareness after the 60s died or was killed, depending on how you look at it. Uh, that period of the 70s was a dead zone culturally and for tap and um they were just barely keeping it alive on life support i think uh gregory hines was the only younger tapper who anyone knew about at that time so when i when i set out to research the book i uh, went to lincoln center i went to um uh they had a fabulous collection of posters and photographs a lot of which we got in the book and uh, the hoofers most of them had uh publicity stills that they gave us so we have this fantastic artwork in the book but there literally was nothing but, as you point out, the 1930s era Jim Crow style instructional books by A.S. Barnes. That mm-hmm. was the history of tap dancing in the New York Public Library and the dance archives. And wow. then there was Marshall Stern's book. Yeah. So you put yourself back in that era and in that headspace. And when Stern's book came along, it was exactly at least when I came upon it with all this other historical information I was getting from every other source, Stern's book was the anomaly to use Kuhn's phrase. Yeah. 
Stearns brought forward the concept of the twin roots of, of a tap, however you merge them and wherever you place the emphasis, but that this was in such a large measure uh, a dance of African-Americans and uh, their, their, their trip over on the slave ships was certainly not a pleasure cruise. It was, as you point out, uh, you know, it was really uh, a forcible form of torture. And even the dancing that they were compelled to do on the decks was to keep them in shape. And it was done at uh, uh, the, the, the lash, at the cat of nine tails, and even on the plantations. So these historical strains came through. But my job was to find somehow reconcile the story that Stearns told with even more limited information than you've got today um, and all these old books talking about what tap dancing was and where it came from in minstrelsy and vaudeville and, and then in the golden age of tap. So it was an astounding thing to try to reconcile that massive historical anomaly at the time. And uh, that's kind of what the book of tap tries to do. Was I correct in thinking that, like you said, jazz dance was the anomaly that you just had this, this wealth of other sources saying something else that kind of overshadowed this other one book. Was I accurate in that? Absolutely. I, because as I say, that was the sum total of the historical record and this, this anomaly of uh, Stern's book, which came out uh, posthumously in 68. Um, it was a, it was a, a fabulous uh, history and dive into this, but even that this was not an era with the kind of, consciousness we have now, the, the dead zone, why I call it a dead zone of the early to mid-70s was because the 60s was really over. It had become an era of bubblegum and sappy sitcoms, and uh, you did you just had the very beginnings of gay rights and feminism, and I don't think there was anything like African-American studies at that time, and the kind of scholarship that you have here. Uh, and and why I say your your podcasts were humbling and hilarious was because you brought a wealth of new knowledge to this. But uh, that the book of tab ranks among the great three of tap dancing history was astounding to me because our assignment was to write an entertaining book for suburban housewives about the tap revival. Now those weren't my words too. That was the words of author Constance Vallis Hill. Are you aware of her book Tap Dancing America? Yeah, I checked out her book and her quotes from the book and also Brian Siebert's, uh, his quotes from the book. Uh, right. He wasn't too kind to Jerry A's <laughs> tap dancing style, but uh, both of them, uh, I'm flattered that they found that to be uh, such a part of it. And, and I'll say I did the best I could in researching it, but also finding in the Harper's Weekly fashion, finding all these people that I could track down and letting them speak for themselves was was eye-opening for me, and, and I know to this day there was nothing, there's been nothing like it to get uh, uh, people talking, uh, to get everyone from Hermes Pan to uh, to Murray Lewis and George Church and Paul Draper talking about his tap dancing, and then the hoofers from uptown, uh, what they did to keep tap alive through that dead zone period. I'll tell you something interesting about that Vallis Hill quote about the book of tap. Someone online, correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe that article was a response to Brian Siebert's book. And the reason that she lists those three books as like the main three is intentionally leaving out his book. So, so what the eye hears came out and on like on the back, I actually have a copy <laughs> in front of me right here. And it says on the back, it goes, at last, a full scale and lively history of its roots, meaning tap dance. And, uh, 
a whole lot of people took offense to that quote because Val's Hill's book had come out like five years before, six years before, and that was billed as like finally a comprehensive look at <laughs> tap dance, which is funny because jazz dance was also marketed as, I saw old dance magazine articles where it's like finally a comprehensive book of tap, so they're all finally the comprehensive, but for some reason a lot of people got mad at uh, what the eye hears for calling itself Finally, there's a book of tap history. So a whole bunch of people wrote some very scathing articles and reviews on it. I mean, some of them make me blush to read them. I mean, you say that I accused you of any type of uh, racial anything. I mean, they... And And I'm kidding, but go ahead. But there's, you know, there's a review by Margaret Morrison, which I actually do a book review of What the Eye Hears. Uh, I think it's episode four of my podcast, if you're interested. But I go into her review, and I can send you a link to that. But she just calls him a, like, white supremacist. Like, she doesn't allude to anything. She's like, he's using the tools of white supremacy to build the house of modern day. So they tear him down because he's very critical of everybody. So when she says, there's already been, like, there's three great books for tap history. Jazz Dance, my book, and the book of tap. She's intentionally leaving out the most recent book that had come out and why she's writing that, which is what the eye hears. Wow. So there's, well, uh, there's drama. Siebert was what? Siebert was what? The Times dance critic? The New York Times dance critic? For still, years? still is, I believe. I think. I think. Uh, well, I can tell you one thing we never claimed about the Book of Tap was that finally here's the comprehensive history. And I appreciate that. Thank you. Because there can't be one. Not really. I mean... That, that's one of the things that really stinks, you know, and, and also something that I also have to constantly remind myself is that, and this is actually something I interviewed Brian Siebert uh, as part of the Chicago Rhythm World Tap Dance Festival in 2021, I think, and, you know, he, he was like, well, what are you supposed to do? Like, the, the, the facts don't exist. Like, everyone who writes about tap dance history, to some degree, has to... I mean, you got to say something. So it always kind of comes down to how you interpret the, the data that you have at that time. You know, so he's like, so everyone getting mad at me for telling my history. It's like, what do you want me to do? That's what everybody does. That's what you have to do because we're missing key factual information. So you do your best. So when I'm reading the book of Tap, my first time through, because I read it through like three times. First time through, I was just like, oh, they're leaving out a lot of stuff. But then, like, my second and third time through, I'm like, well, that's because that stuff doesn't exist. So I give you points back for that, of course. But, I do. I appreciate it. But then, like, um, but then, okay, so I was, I was listening to, I was re-listening to the Mind Shift episodes. For my listeners, just so you know, there's a podcast called Mind Shift by Clint Heacock. Am I getting that right? Dr. Clint Heacock. Dr. Clint Heacock, excuse me, of course. And I think there's three episodes with with you and Flo on there. So I was kind of re-listening to them again. And at the end of one of them, Flo said some some really great comments, how she was concerned that, you know, quote-unquote, young people of today are just, are so ignorant of, of history. And that, when yes. they finally learn the history, like, they're shocked, and they're like, that can't be true, and then people get mad, and people, you know, act irrationally, and I'm listening to this, and, you know, 
that's me. That's me who she's talking about. I'm the white <laughs> suburban kid who didn't know any of this stuff. You know, my first tap dance history I read, it was like, well, it was the African-Americans and Irish immigrants, and they had dance parties, and that's where tap dance came from, hunky-dory. And then to learn all this other stuff. And that wasn't from the book of tap? Where, where, where did you read that version? Well, that one, I mean, that's, that's well, let, let me correct myself. That's the popular mythos that I heard. Yes. And then uh, when I first read Vallis Hill's Tap Dancing America, she kind of starts out in that vein that, like, tap dancers are, like, you know, like, like in, inhabited by the pagan Irish spirits of yore, and they dance and they prance around, and they're happy, and they're, you know. So then I that kind of confirmed that. Like, reading her book was a big turning point for me because she does go into the civil rights stuff. So she kind of opened my eyes to other things. But then it, it's still so much more depressing, parts of it, anyways. So, so like, I'm, I feel like I'm experiencing that shock right now. And that's... a a really difficult thing that I'm I'm personally dealing with in the moment is is how to read texts of their time as if I, you know, and not judge them too harshly. Well, that is uh, that's Thomas Kuhn for you, Tristan. Yep. These are these anomalies are not just in your head. These anomalies that surface and cause these these crises in uh, in scientific paradigms and in artistic and cultural paradigms. These things come along, and they are disruptive. They are disturbing, and the only way to get beyond that para- that old that anomaly to the new paradigm is through a lot of blood, sweat, and tears. There is a lot of upheaval inside people and uh, and in cultures. And what you're experiencing is perfectly normal because we are in a time of of great upheaval and anomalies everywhere you look. And and uh, what you've showed me from your podcasts and uh, your thoughts on this is that even in these 40 years. Uh, the world of tap dancing has not exactly uh, settled into a new golden age. Oh, no. It's still the same, same arguments, same everything. What's interesting is is um, whenever I'm in an argument with another tap dancer, what I'll do, because usually we're a, pretty, we're a pretty liberal bunch, you know? Tap dancers, like, you kind of yeah. have to be, right? Like, our, we're, we're, yeah. we claim to be accepting of everybody. But a lot of times that's not the case. And when people start talking about the purity of tap dance, of which I've definitely also been am guilty of, but I've since kind of changed my mind in a way that, well, it's it's too complicated to go into. But um, but yeah, when someone starts talking about the pure tap dance, it's just like, well, I didn't know you were a tap dance conservative. And then they're like, what? Don't you call me a conservative. How could you call me that? I'm like, <laughs> yeah, but you're saying there's one way to do it, and, you know, it's my way or the highway. And you're, you know, like a very like classical, classical liberal type of thing of where we're, you know, it's we, it's it's reason and it's rationality, and you know, I kind of go for the postmodern thing of I'm looking at every story, right, and trying to put it together opposed to like any one way of looking at it. But I was surprised in your uh, in your podcast. Uh, I don't know, was episode one even? You really were kind of tough on ballet dancers and this fusion of tap and ballet, which was uh, what Jerry presented and Draper as as one of the cutting edges and one of the ways forward if tap was going to come back. Uh, and you're really tough on modern dancers. Boy, Murray Lewis would be coming at you swinging now. Uh, what did you call him? Sweaty, running, writhing, wriggling. <laughs> Well, part of that's a joke because my wife is actually a professional modern dancer. 
<laughs> oh, okay. Now and, that's and that's the same joke. Every time she's she's like, oh, I, I joined a company for a new show. I'm like, oh, are you guys going to like run in a circle and then like roll on the ground and then like stop and like look really scared and then someone's going to jump on someone's back and then you're going to turn, you know, and I'm sorry, sweetheart. I, well, if, if you're listening if to this, has, I'm if sorry. She if she hasn't left you by now, then I'm certainly not going to give you a hard time. Listen, she is one tough lady let me tell you she she's perfectly capable of dealing with a pipsqueak like me so that is well listen Flo's sister is a modern dancer and okay. uh, uh we had some very good friends in, in the late 70s while i was researching book of tap one was a dancer with the murray lewis company and uh, that's how she got me the interview with murray lewis several times uh and uh in fact uh murray lewis set a piece in the late 70s for for nureyev called uh, Canarsie Venus. They performed this uh, on Broadway, and uh, and Diane, his dancer, asked if I would be her plus one to go to the after party, which was at the Copacabana. Wow. Uh, for this fusion. So I like to say I dance with Nureyev at the Copa. <laughs> Why isn't that in the... In the like the side bill of your book like that should be in the biography. First thing. He danced with Nureyev at the Copa, right. Wow. <laughs> If you wouldn't mind, so I have these these reoccurring tap dance history tropes. Okay. And I talk about it in the review of your book. I'm kind of always talking about them because I see them pop up. So I'd like to go through a couple of them with you and just get your take on them. Right? Please. Uh, well, we can Please. start with the, the ballet tap movement. Some tap dancers view that era of tap dance as kind of pushing out a black style of tap dance. I consider tap dance a, a, a black art form for historic reasons and political reasons, right? So I've got mm -hmm. that's gonna that's a whole episode I'm gonna do, like why I believe tap dance is a black American art form. But it seemed to be a way to kind of erase the black presence by putting more like Eurocentrism in the art form. For example, I went back and I read all of at the Chicago Herald Washington Library, I went back and read all of Paul Draper's dance magazine articles. After reading mm -hmm. your bibliography in the Book of Tap, I was like, "Wow, he wrote for them for like like a decade, like nonstop." Yes. And so I went, yes. so I went to my library. I'm like, "Do you happen to have every dance magazine ever made?" And they're like, "Of course we do. It's the Herald Washington Chicago Library." So I read them wow. all, and you you would barely know that he's writing about tap dance. I mean, all the, the terminology he uses is ballet terminology. Instead of bending your knees, it's a plie, you know? Instead of, you know, jumping, it's a, I don't know, a jambete. I just made that word up, but it's all Greek to me, this French. And it, it's, just, it's just kind of odd because tap dancers kind of had their own way to do things. And it's, it's just, it's just, it seems forced almost. That's really interesting because, uh, and again, I'll qualify anything I say because, you know, my research and this book was not a, a scholarly deep dive. And because of the time I put in on it and uh, the resources I had available, I was pretty much leapfrogging, leapfrogging through the history. But what you're describing, I did feel at the time, which was the same way that the hookers had their challenges mm -hmm. up in Harlem. I think the black and white tappers at that time period, especially, were fighting for the high ground on tap dancing. And I found Jerry to be right in the middle. He went right down the middle because he, he really respected the hookers and he was so proud to be 
on stage with them and talking to them, you know, they were preserving this dance form. They didn't really know the kind of, of history of its, uh, of its origins, uh, that the, uh, the tap dance, what is it called? The tap dance research network in the UK that these people oh, yeah. have done and the, and that scholars have dived into it. And, but I think that Draper who was considered cutting edge at that time. And certainly, uh, in Jerry's book, uh, Jack Stanley and, and Paul Draper were the, were the cutting edge. But you know, what I felt when I'm surveying the whole scene, when you see the origins, the black history origins of this, you know, what I was doing, and you know, there's a lot of stuff in the book that I wrote tongue in cheek. It was my Harvard lampoon roots coming out. But mm-hmm. when I was talking about the origins on the slave ships and when I'm going, meanwhile, yes. in Africa, my yep. sense was, though, that the cloggers in Lancashire and the Irish cloggers, these people were young, and, and even the Dutch, they were in wooden shoes on hard floors. Mm-hmm. And there it was about the sound and the percussion. Uh, in Africa, my understanding was is that this was low to the ground and these were literally uh, people dancing in bare feet on, on earth. And sure. uh, it wasn't about the sound. So that merger, which I tried to preserve pretty much, I, I tried to do it pretty much 50-50 in the book, but I was always fighting. Uh, these, these, uh, mostly what you've pointed out, it was white tappers trying to claim the dance going back to the thirties and those textbooks and right up to the time of ballet. But if you look at the, even just the record on film, Mm -hmm. uh, I I think singing in a rain did a great job of, of, uh, portraying that evolution from vaudeville right through the balletic style at the, uh, the dream sequence at the end of Singing in the Rain with mm. Gene Kelly and Sid Charisse. You're seeing these twin streams, and, and Jerry kept pounding this into me that Fred Astaire was the first to bring style and sophistication uh, in the 30s uh, musicals, and Gene Kelly was really the one who brought that upper body balletic style sure. to tap. Well, then, so that, and, so that brings us to then the next uh, kind of kind of trope I see coming up or the next theory is the twin streams theory and author Vallis Hill is she's adamant on this like I I have not seen an interview with her where she doesn't bring it up like in Jerry Ames's in his obituary in the New York Times she's quoted as talking about the twin streams of tap dance and I don't know why it seems like really weird but every <laughs> time she speaks she talks about twin streams of tap dance and fine she's absolutely can have her opinion based on the data she's found. But one thing that that ignores is how much borrowing white vaudeville and then white Broadway and then white films were borrowing from African-American dancers. Like when you write in the book of Tap about the Hoofers Club and how it was, you know, this racial milieu where everyone is, is getting along, I think that it would have been a great to talk about how none of those black gentlemen in the Hoofers Club would have been able to go to Broadway, you know? So yeah, there's this great racial mixing in the Hoofers Club, but that's only in the Hoofers Club. It could not happen. Yes. Uh, No, I thought that was a really great part of your podcast. Uh, It's really true. And I guess because of my background in blues and jazz and my time with all the old Mississippi Delta blues men, you know, the fact is that, you know, white people just ripped off the blues completely. Elvis did it first. Uh, Lennon and McCartney at least gave some credit. Um, Mick Jagger and Keith Richards did a whole lot better job than the Rolling Stones when they recorded Fred McDowell's You Gotta Move on Sticky Fingers in 1967. 
uh, two years before the Ann Arbor Festival, this brought Fred out of obscurity. He'd been working as a janitor in a Stuckey's on Highway 61 in Como, <laughs> Mississippi, until, until the Stones covered his song. And uh, But in tap dancing, I think I didn't see that stream. I wasn't making those connections at the time. But looking back, I have to say, I did not see credit being given uh, in the golden age of tap. What you pointed out, you had Bojangles Robinson, Mm-hmm. Uh, who was treated in the in the old Jim Crow style in all those films? Yeah. Uh, you had the Nicholas Brothers, who you say showed up in exactly one point one scene. That's right, and, and that's uh, true. I mean, they're in the one scene, and then at the end, they're in a doorway for ten seconds, and then it's it one point one. And uh, and you look at uh, Stormy Weather and Sun Valley Serenade. These mm-hmm. films you point out, and uh, they're just uh, they were just uh, uh, en- entertainment. They were just really just novelty acts. But um, I think that yeah. uh, there was this going on through the golden age of tap uh, because of all the separation of, uh, of race and entertainment. And it's definitely in the performing arts on Broadway uptown and downtown up in Harlem. Uh, I think that there was a lot of attempts by people like Draper, perhaps. Uh, I won't indict him specifically, but I think that t- they were trying to take credit and they were trying to take tap forward uh, in this fusion, what you call the twin streams or what she calls this twin streams theory. And it was not equal credit being given. I'm always torn between like, like, like enlightenment philosophy and like kind of like postmodern philosophy, you know, like I've kind of, well, going back to Kuhn, uh, just to clear this up for my listeners, I meant to do this before. We're talking about episode three of the gas podcast, where I look at Thomas Kuhn's the structure of scientific revolutions and apply it to tap dance. That's why we're talking about Kuhn. Go check it out, episode three. But similar to like he says, like I'm stuck in my own gestalt and I think that normal science is an important procedure, but then I kind of need that kind of postmodern deconstruction of meta narratives type of framework to, to break out of my paradigm, as it were. In fact, the next episode I'm going to do after this series of that I'm doing is looking at Leotard's postmodern condition. So, <laughs> so I'm deep into it. He's he's a fun guy. But yeah, yeah but, I have a I have a copy of Kuhn a foot away from me on the same shelf where I keep the book of tap. I have my copy of Kuhn, and on Flo's bookshelf ac- across the room here from us, she's got her copy of Kuhn. So Kuhn is never far from us, and is uh, part of the thinking uh, clearly of these these streams that were not just mixing and merging; they were just heaving and writhing to get to the next stage. Sure. But then I just so you know I just I'm not a fan of this twin streams theory because it seems like you know either tap dance just evolve well. It just seems like that it, it, that's too simplistic to divide tap dance by racial lines. When as whereas you look at modern dance, you know, well, what you know, what are, what are, what are like the eras of modern dance? Well, you've got you call it like Denishon, right? And then there's like you know Graham and Humphrey and and Dunham and you know, and then you go to Limon and Luigi, but they don't right. break it up into you know, it's not like Catherine Dunham's the black stream of modern dance. Well, I'm sure some people break it up that way, but usually it's based on the individual's technique. Again, more of a liberal way, whereas tap dance is this, you know, well, there's the black tap dance, and there's the white tap dance. Except that all the white people are stealing a lot of stuff from the black tap dance, but the black tap dance steals some from the white tap dance, and meanwhile, there's a whole, like, circuit of Asian tap dancers during vaudeville that nobody's even talking about. So what did we steal from that? I mean, it just seems to break it down to, like, 
black and white race like streams is just I don't know it 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 worked. That's interesting. For, it worked for that era of vaudeville, but then as soon as those big reviews on Broadway, I don't know that that works anymore. So I could say that there's a twin streams for like that period, but then after like 1918, I just don't see how that makes any sense. And especially for someone to go on in interviews today to say that that's still how it is. I don't know how you could go in an interview that like a black dancer on Broadway could hear and then being like, wait, so I do white tap dancing? Like, that just seems really weird to me. Well, I haven't read Constance Hill's book. I don't want to be unfair to her. I'm not sure exactly the way she paints this twin streams theory if she sees them. Uh, I think I used a phrase you quoted about the double helix in the book of tap uh, uh, in a passing reference. But if she's saying the twin streams evolved uh, separately or that they had independent uh, dissent. Uh, I don't think I took that point at all. I think what was very clear uh, was clearly this merger, the, what you call the fortunate ship dancers. Uh, I think that, that that mixing that began there, maybe at uh, well at the point of a whip, but that mixing there that began and that came together in, uh, in America, uh, I think it was very much a, a constant interchange and evolution, but I think if there was any stealing going on, it was mostly one direction. It was just like the blues. It was white people stealing it from African-Americans. Yeah, that's one thing that I, I struggle with because as I read stuff, it seems to me that there, there's more white influence in tap dance that, that a lot of people would, would want to believe. But at the same time, that white influence was done in more blackface than other people would want to believe, if that makes sense. Like, it's kind of like each side has, might have to give something and no one's going to be happy about it because <laughs> it's terrible. Well, I think that I think the hoofers that I talked to, they were just glad that ta- that they were still able to tap, that they were keeping uh, their version, the, the, their their relatively pure version of the that line of descent alive. And uh, and that Gregory Hines at that time was uh, was uh, at least keeping it alive. Uh, George Church in the in the closing section of the of the front end of the book, chapter seven, where. We talk about the future of tap, and he talks about what would keep tap and bring it back. And he talked about the need for a tap messiah, and he talked about it. Somebody who's got to come along to be an inspiration like Fred Astaire or Gene Kelly to really bring it ahead. There's got to be one terrific personality, and he can change the course of music and dancing. So what you need is a tap messiah, somebody who will come along and inspire everybody. Now, at that moment, when I'm researching the book, I didn't know that Savian Glover was three years old. But I contend now, with what you call the privilege of hindsight, that Savian Glover is the tap messiah, or was. I mean, he really is the person who brought this forward. He brought forward the pure African-American stream, uh, and he also brought to it something original, and obviously his knowledge and history of all the various influences and streams in tap but he did it as something really new and original and i think he of all people really brought tap uh, brought it back to, to the point where i wouldn't really uh i would take issue with your notion of gas from a dying art form compared to the mid-70s tap today is a thriving art form it is so undead it is it is undying even but obviously you know the struggle uh, oh, well, to get recognition see, see i'm paying for the name for my podcast because i'm like 
I, I'm of like the Vanagushian school of of optimistic pessimist, you know. So for my way of dealing with things that upset me is to joke about them. And w one thing that tap dancers, we all, you know, one thing tap dancers hate when you run into someone and they're like, "What do you do?" and you tell them. Well, I'm a tap dancer, and the first thing they're going to say nine out of ten times is like, you're a tap dancer, that's great. You know it's a dying art form. And we're always like, yeah, yeah, it's a dying art form, even though there's millions of people all over the world doing it. Uh, so You still get that from people. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's just like, it's eye-rolling. It's getting better. I have to say, thanks to the TV dancing shows, which, I, I mean, I really don't watch or subscribe to. I only watch them when the tap dances are on. <laughs> I don't even have cable. I got to go to someone's house or a bar to watch it. Um, mm -hmm. But I think that's helped out a lot. Like this TV show World of Dance, I think has helped out a lot. So less now, but that's pretty recent. But we still get that. So the name of the show is, but I still have to explain it like every once in a while to someone on Facebook and be like, no, 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 it's not actually dying. Well, wh why do you think it's dying? That's so mean. It's like, I'm just, it means the opposite, you know, but. So yeah, so but that's good. Well, I have to tell you, you know, we're we're in lockdown here in New York, like everybody. We've been in yeah. lockdown most of the last two years because of COVID. Yeah. Uh, but in New York, when COVID hit here in uh, spring of 2020, we got it worse than anywhere, and there were no defenses, there were no treatments, and it was a very grim time here. And every night at seven o'clock, New Yorkers would throw open their windows, and we would bang pots and clap, and we would, you know, applaud the. Uh, caregivers and all the essential workers to give them wow. credit for keeping us all alive and fed. Uh, and across the street from us, uh, there was one window that had opened up and a little boy and his mom would come out every night at seven and they would uh, clap and applaud and we'd kind of wave to each other. We didn't know who they were. And only two months ago did we find out that this little guy, uh, it was a five-year-old kid and his mother's a photographer and a model. And uh, they found us really inspiring because we were applauding and banging pots. Flo would be dancing in the windows, and I'd point my little speakers out the window, and I would uh, uh, be playing music all over uh, Murray Hill, a part of Manhattan. And uh, Jackie, we find out, is a tap dancer. He's At five, he started yeah. tap lessons, and he's also taking musical theater lessons. And just last month, he saw his first Broadway musical when he saw the uh, – the, uh, the trials for a music man. So uh, to find that this is still thriving here and that young kids are really dying to learn tap in the context of musical theater and dance, uh, this is a thriving art form right now. Oh yeah, I would, I, I would, if I were to coin it an era, I would coin it the platinum age. Good. You know, past the modern age, but yeah, because we're, it's, it's, and now we have all sorts of other problems. Uh, I was at the Los Angeles Tap Festival years ago. They had like a Hollywood casting agent or something on the panel. Just like someone who's outside of tap dance so that we could ask her, like, well, what do you guys think of tap dance over there? And she was great. The audience did not like her at all because she was incredibly pessimistic. But I loved it because, as I said, I'm like, oh, Vonnegut. She, I mean, she was pretty much Vonnegut up there in that she was like, <laughs> well, you know, you're all asking us, when is tap dance going to get its own movie? When, it's gonna, when is it going to get its own show? And she's like, look, if tap dance gets its own movie, it's going to be sponsored by McDonald's and run by a whole bunch of oligarchs funding the thing. I mean, it's, it's not going to be the tap dance movie that you think it's going to be. You know, it's not going to be Gregory Hines and Savion Glover just like tap dancing on screen for two hours because that's what you want. Mm -hmm. 
it's going to be mm-hmm. the Hollywood version of that, you know, or the television version of that. So just be careful what you wish for. Oh, I understand. I understand. I mean, Hollywood has not brought it forward. Broadway has not brought it forward. You know, to me, I'm a purist here, I guess. Tavian Glover brought it forward. Uh, the thing that struck me the whole time I was doing this research in the book was, you know, here are all these historical tap dancers on stage, black and, and white, but mostly the white tappers with the stupid smiles plastered to their face while they're concentrating so hard on their footwork. And I read one quote from Savian Glover later where he had the same concern about that stupid smile, and he pretty much wiped it off of uh, tap dancing. Uh, and uh, and his style, to me, was something that could take it forward. But uh, Hollywood, mainstream, mostly white culture, has really not gone and made any progress as far as, far as I see. Have you seen uh, the movie Bamboozled? Probably, but I don't recall. I think you would remember it. this one because it, it's, it has Savion Glover tap dancing in blackface throughout the whole movie. I, you'd probably remember this one. Uh, by wow, Spike no, Lee. then I didn't see it. Yeah, it came out in 2000. It's by Spike Lee. It's tough to watch because there's so much blackface, you know, like in, like, digital color. But I would say that's the, the movie that if a tap dancer, if, like, a contemporary pessimistic tap dancer could make a movie, that would be the movie. So, like, we kind of do have a modern-day tap dance movie, and it is quite gruesome. I mean, I've seen it, it's like, painful. five times, but... Well, oh. that's interesting. Well, then uh, leave it to Spike Lee to, to make that leap forward. I just want to say I know that, you know, looking back, when I looked at this, uh, at the Book of Tap for the first time in about 40 years and uh, signed a copy to give it to my friend Jackie across the street, I'm looking at this history, and obviously it struck me, this stuff is not how it would be written today. This is, uh, you know, this artwork and the story that evolved is, is certainly doesn't have the privilege of hindsight back then. That period in the 70s when this tap revival uh, came and mostly at the hands of white suburban women, this was that dead zone. This was before disco. This was before aerobics, decades before river dance. I mean, this was a period when these people were looking for what we say in the book, for entertainment, for exercise, for fun, for happiness. Uh, But it was conducted pretty much in a cultural vacuum. Oh, I believe it. I believe it. Like I said, I'm a white guy from the suburbs, so... You know, so am I. you're whistling to Dixie here. Um, I have two more, two more theories to to go past you before we get to to the the heavy stuff, right? So foreshadowing okay. for the listeners, the happy slave ship dancing theory. That's just what I've called it. I can I should probably change that theme. It sounds a little little too, I don't know. But there's so many different accounts of the quote unquote euphemistic dancing that was done on these slave ships, it just seems odd that it's the kind of happy version that gets told. And in the Book of Tap, it is kind of like at least this came out of it, which could be fair. But then you look at books that go after it. Like there's another book that I'm actually going to cover in this series that I'm doing, the Hidden Histories series, where it goes from, well, it's something that happened to being called like a joyous event. And then you read other books where they're like, how happy were these people? How fortunate we were that these two groups met in the middle of the Atlantic. And it just gets more and more saccharine 
and more and well, more romantic. And I just wonder. Well, I'm sure I'm like, I fell into some of it. I'm sure I fell into some of that, and I think you quoted. Uh, I used the word "charm" to describe the antebellum period uh, uh, and uh, and minstrelsy. I mean, obviously, um, that was the that was the. You have to go back to the '70s to realize that there was not the cultural awareness. Uh, uh, that we have the benefit of today and all the scholarship that has been done historically to pull these things forward. But I also went back to the book of tap, you know, we, do, I do point out in there that these, uh, the, these slaves were forced on deck. They were forced to dance. Uh, I didn't know yes. about the cat and nine tails explicitly. And, mm-hmm. and also on the plantations, the, the cakewalks. And that was, that was a forced dancing. Yes. And if anything, uh, that these uh, that the, the the slaves who were forbidden to make music in any other way or to drum even because of the Stono slave rebellion of 1739, mm-hmm. all they had was their feet to make music to communicate. Absolutely, and I I believe I do make the point that unlike the previous books I was looking at, the Book of Tap does not because some of those older books. They kind of just make things up about race, you know, like in, in, in uh, the, the one book from the, the 30s. It's in the bibliography for Book of Tap, uh, Tap Dances by Dr. Anne yeah. Dugan, where she calls, right. you know, she's like, well, you know, black dance is really only half black dance because they were using European music and doing European dance moves and then leaves out the forcing stuff you know so she's kind of making up her own kind of pseudo definition here and i do not see that in the book of tap i want to be very clear the book of tap is not just inserting just random racial opinion into the history of tap dance my my concern was the stuff that is left out but also mm-hmm. you can't put in everything i do realize that that's also what i got to tell myself it's like well this is not a 500 page book this is you only have limited real estate. <laughs> and in 12-point type, there was hardly room for history in true. that book. <laughs> right. But it's also true that, uh, you know, literally I was as thorough as I could be in the public library and especially up at Lincoln Center. And there was no detail. There was no linking. Some of these sources you cited, uh, Black Dance in U.S., it was published in 1972, a couple of years earlier. That was not on my radar, let alone those mm. original accounts from the 1700s. Those were not on anyone's radar, especially in the context of, of something like uh, the, uh, the descent of tap dancing. And, uh, and I certainly didn't have any political agenda when I was writing that book. And I was barely aiming to do a scholarly work. I had no intention of, of positioning it as such. We didn't use the word finally. Well, I'm just happy you have a bibliography at all because that gave me a lot of stuff to hunt down because all the other books... There, there is no bibliography. It's just, how, where are you getting this from? Like, I have no idea. Um, and they're not even indexed. I don't even know if Jazz Dance was indexed. And, and you know, it always bothered me that Stearns called his book Jazz Dance and not Tap Dance, and that he refers to it as American Vernacular Dancing. You know, uh, he was a founder of the uh, Newport uh, Jazz Festival, so his interest right. was in the music. But uh, I was surprised that he wasn't... He, he had no agenda either. He was presenting this from his interest. Well, but, he, uh, I, I, I authoritative might, work on. I might I might disagree with you that in, that he did that he did have an agenda. I mean, it's an agenda that I agree with because oh, from what I've read about him, uh, I've read I've read I read like an article. I forget who wrote it, but there's like just kind of a biography of him and the study of his work. 
Uh, and he was, you know, kind of like how I feel. He was shocked at how much he didn't know about the, the African-American influence on jazz music. And when he started learning stuff, when he started going places, then it hit him. He's like, oh, my goodness, like, like we, everything's been a lie, kind of, you know, or been a half-truth. So he kind of made it his life's work to uncover the hidden contribution of African-American artists. Well, that's great. I, I faintly remember that uh, that that aspect of the book. So I, I'll backtrack on that. It's true. So he did have he did have a purpose, and and I think it, why I say that was the anomaly that really uh, undergirded the revolution, the rebirth of tap, because it had to be reconciled. And uh, and now I, I'm so glad that you have have drawn on that strain to really make sure that 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 strain of tap history is at the forefront, because that's where it should be. I lied. I have two more theories to get by you real quick. I know I'm just throwing these out at you. Okay, well, I'm doing my best to field these things coming at me out in the left field here. Well, I mean, they're kind of things that have no answer. So <laughs> there is, there's the, the death of minstrelsy theory. So you have one section in the book of Tap called the death of minstrelsy. And, you know, and I'm of the opinion that blackface minstrelsy it never died. Like kind of like tap dance, reports of its death are grossly exaggerated. And I use as example in my review of your book that how there are blackface numbers in some of the movies in the the movie list that you have in the book. Right. My concern about that, I mean, I listen to this because, and it's like you know the feeling that I had at the time, and most of those films, as I recall them. It was not what you would call an exchange of influences, an exchange of cultural influences. It seemed more like it was a vestigial or even a, uh, a uh, an implicitly racial approach to entertainment as that existed through the 20s and 30s and, and, and even after that. Uh, but it seemed like these were more vestigial homage, if you want to put it that much, to these entertainment forms. Uh, that uh, what you said about uh, Jolson story, Al Jolson and the yep. Jolson story, mm-hmm. had fascinated me. He had six Academy Award nominations, and what did he win for? Best musical and best sound editing, yeah. which uh, clearly made sense if there's tap in there. I mean, there's there's a little tap in there. They actually, one of the few moments of tap dance is actually Al Jolson himself, because he was afraid that the guy playing him wouldn't do it good enough. They have the the young actor singing, impersonating him, and then they pull out to the like one of the few tap dance sections, and that's actually Al Jolson doing it. And he's like, I don't know how old, but he's you know pretty old in nineteen forty five. But that's actually him dancing there. So you see him do it. You can't tell it's him because the camera's so far away. But that's him doing like some early tap dance. So I find, and it's only like like twenty seconds long, but I find myself watching that over and over again because that is. The vaudeville tap, that is the minstrel tap, like right there. You know, I wish that they but, had given him a whole dance number, but, you know, whatever. But, but as I recall it, I mean, yeah, and, and the jazz singer, uh, at that time, it was part of the of the currency of vaudeville. Sure. But in when you get to Singing in the Rain and these later ones, they're more uh, historical nods. They're not part of an evolving stream of dance, and, mm-hmm. and uh, they're really cringeworthy now when, uh, when you look at these things. Now I'm sure everybody cringes when you see these, and and even I know in the book of tap I had that one historical picture of 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 Thomas Rice jumping Jim Crow. It's yeah. like I cringed at that then, 
And you look at that now and it's like, wow, that's where this culture was at. And it's crazy to think about because in, in a lot of the books I read, they end blackface minstrelsy in 1890. I've read so many times, I can't tell you how many times, where it's like 1890 saw the sharp decline of minstrelsy, blackface minstrelsy, and like, yeah, I guess that's true, but then to say that it died out, I found out about Dugan's book, Tap Dances, from another book that I found at my local library called The Complete Tap Dance Book, which has a number in there described as a blackface dance routine for children. Complete wow. with, you know, like how to make, like you can burn cork to make the stuff. If, if you don't want to do that, you can go to your local cosmetics place to buy like some shade of, of like black person's skin color. And that book. And this that, was in the 30s? Well, it came out in the 30s, but then was republished in 1977, the same year as the Book of Tap. Good God. Right? And I, I, I found a bunch of other ones like that too. It's weird because we say, like, yeah, th that's from, like, over 100 years ago. But then I find in, like, I find old newspaper articles in the Chicago Tribune where it's like they were having blackface minstrel charities for, like, the real estate broker's annual luncheon at the Chicago Board of Trade. In, like, 1955, I found one. There's, you know, church blackface minstrel charity drives in, like, 1963. Not in Evanston, someplace I'm blanking on it, but... But someplace like in northwest suburbs of, of Chicago, and it's just to, to say that it came anywhere close to dying. And how many politicians now are caught wearing blackface in college in the nineties? I mean, come yeah, on. And 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 we can we can uh, uh, we can thank Donald Trump for bringing this race hatred in this country back to the fore. And the Republican Party has had more more than its share of people who are still relishing that era. And it's just, it's utterly appalling socially and politically. And uh, in terms of the art form, that astounds me. But I guess when they talk about the death of minstrelsy, they're kind of saying it evolved into vaudeville. It went from just people in blackface, white people mimicking, uh, you know, uh, black, black dance and black uh, culture. And then minstrels, uh, vaudeville was evolving in other ways, which you referred to as all the racial stereotypes oh, that sure. were part of vaudeville. Oh, yeah. But uh, I guess most of these things now, it's astounding. I, I really want to see Bamboozled, but it's astounding to me that so much of this, uh, of these forms of tap that are still around are really throwbacks and they're, they're vestigial entertainment forms. They're nothing current as far as I can tell. Oh, because, I mean, we're just finding, it feels like every month there, a new clip is unearthed from the 1930s or the 20s or the 40s or something. So, like, we're just now finally seeing a lot of old styles of tap dance. And for us, that's brand new. Wow, that looks so cool. Like, what they're doing, that looks totally different than what we're doing. Ignorant of the fact, I mean, well, we're not ignorant of the fact, but just kind of forgetful of the fact that we're doing the evolved version of that and now going back to draw on new ideas to what to use. So it's a... Thanks to YouTube and the internet, it's a pretty interesting time to be a tap dancer. I imagine. Yeah, and it's a and it's a great time to dig back into into history in print and sure. in 
and on and on film. I know uh, that comment you quoted from from Flo's comments in the Mindshift podcast. Yeah, uh, Flo and I comment all the time that it seems like you know for younger generations than ours, uh, nothing that uh, happened before digitization in the mid '90s and the internet uh, even exists if they don't have instant access to it because right. it's been digitized and uploaded. Uh, there's a lot of history before then that you have to do a little bit more work to get at it. Oh, absolutely. I just worry that the, the lay person reads the death of minstrelsy and interprets that as the death of black stereotypes. Does that make sense? Um, yeah, I, I, yeah, and like, I think like that a form the way of, you talk... Like a form of thin to seal colorblindness, as it were. Very, very much, but I, I, I'm just afraid that the rebirth of race hatred in this country is also part of... Uh, these twin these twin streams what's happened and and uh in especially in uh in, in in the social and political arenas and i think a lot of what you're commenting on and reacting to and what i cringe at now when i see this uh in any of these historical things is a is a stream of american culture that has not died and uh that's part of the difficulty uh, i think that one of the things i noticed uh, when i say the uh, the young black musicians we met at the Ann Arbor Blues Festival the last thing they wanted to do was blues they were into Motown and they were into uh and and that period of the 70s why I say it was a dead zone this was before hip-hop and break dancing and before disco after Flo and I left Harper's we did some work for the first international discotheque magazine that uh that came of age uh, right when Saturday Night Fever first came out that whole period and yeah. we went to all the big discos in New York. There were gay discos and straight discos, and the black discos were the most sophisticated. The, the Latin discos had the salsa, pure forms, and the black discos. We would do uh, shoots there, film shooting for uh, the covers and artwork in these magazines, and we would be in there till 7 in the morning, and you would see some of the most elegant people on earth who were dressed to the nines and dancing the most advanced dances and you, uh, there was a group at the time called uh, Dr. Buzzard's original Savannah Band that played at Studio 54 and some of these uh, early discos. And this was just fantastic stuff. But these were not people who were interested in the origins of tap dancing. Oh, sure. And I mean, to hear you describe that reminds me of, of similar descriptions of the Savoy Ballroom in Harlem. Yeah. I mean, it almost, yeah. almost word for word, almost verbatim, to be honest. But. All right, last, last, last one, and then we, 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 we start winding down. Then I have my postscript, but go ahead. Of course, of course. No, I, I give you the final word. That's my guarantee. Uh, la so last, go ahead. last theory. If tap dance is the product of such a melting pot, why is this focus on specifically Irish and African? And, of course, there's a lot of instances. I mean, of course, we had the Great Potato Famine, uh, and, you know, we saw this, this uh, humongous influx of Irish immigrants in, uh, you know, 45 to, well, you know, up until, turn, well, up to like the 1880s, 1890s. And, yeah, the first wave. Yeah, and, and that's a significant input. But for some people, it kind of ignores, if, if, you know, if you're of the opinion like I am, where you look at more than just the, the, the dance technique, Right, because I'm looking at the re one of the reasons I think. Well, I I think tap dance is a black art form because I'm looking at it again from like a postmodern type of perspective of not just what's in the feet, 
right? But there's the aesthetic of the posture, you know, the right, how right. how it you know just how it's the, how the center of gravity is done, like the type of rhythm that is being used. Just the, uh, I mean, there's so many different things to say that it's like, well, the Irish gave us some fast steps. Sounds sounds a little limiting. There's so many influences mentioned for tap dance. And then after everyone mentions that tap dance is melting pot and everyone contributes to it, they then boil it down to Irish and African. And then it gets complicated because there is this, I don't know if you're aware, but there's this white nationalist thread that I believe began in the 1990s that it was really getting popular of like, well, the Irish were slaves too. Right, and that which essentially equates Irish indentured servitude to chattel slavery. Right, I have seen some of that. It is appalling to me. Um, I mean, I have a quick note on it. I mean, uh, in the '90s, I think when it started going, there was an author named Michael A. Hoffman II, who was, uh, I mean, not only was an anti-Semite conspiracy therapist uh, therapist not conspiracy therapist though we could use those right now uh he was a holocaust denier and then he also wrote a series of books one was white cargo the forgotten history of britain's white slaves in america and that came out in 93 and that kind of is used for the basis for now like on social media you see memes you'll see a, a, the most famous one is like a torn confederate flag emblazoned with the words before you talk about black lives mattering, why don't you talk about white slavery or something like that? So now a lot of people are like, well, is this strict Irish-African thing? Is that a part of that? Because on one hand, it's a melting pot, and you're like, tap dance comes from all the cultures that come to America. But then on the other hand, people are like, Irish-Africa. And then they're not even specific of where in Africa. Like, like where? Are we talking about from, like, the Benin region? Are we talking about the... You know, Congo, are we talking about Senegal? Are we talking about, like, Biafra? And the, I mean, what, are we talking about the Igbo? The, I mean, who are we, you know, it's always Ireland and Africa. It just seems very pedantic to a lot of people. Wow, I, I did not know that you had this whole strain of, uh, of white nationalism coming into the discourse, as they call it. And that would strike me, and it would strike Flo, I know, as just a criminal case of false equivalence to mm -hmm. see that that kind of uh, a revisionism. Uh, I'm, I was pleased to see you give credit tongue-in-cheek to the cultural equity in the Book of Tap. We go back to the Dutch in their wooden clogs and the, the Cossacks on the steps of Russia, with right. tongue-in-cheek on my part, and African tribes in the plural. Uh, yeah. The blending, and I guess from what I saw, uh, the Irish get some credit, but the Lancashire... Uh, uh, the Lancashire, uh, you know, uh, people uh, to tribes in Lancashire in New Eng in England could get plenty of credit on their own too. The, the counties, Lancashire yeah. clog, yeah, counties. Yeah, and I think that um, I think that all that is part of this, you know, mixing and merging and the melting pot. Uh, am I wrong to assume you may know this and and I don't or I forgot? Mm -hmm. uh, when were metal taps put on shoes? Was that only in America or was that done in in Europe? Uh. That's a tricky one. In uh, in the book Tap Roots by Mark Knowles, he puts it at 1903 in a Ned Wayburn um, advertisement. And then there, I've also in seen... In the a, U.S. Yes, in the U.S. And then I've also seen a quote by Fred Kelly where he says that he didn't notice them until like the 20s. 
right? I don't want to misquote him, but I'm, I I think okay. I remember reading that. And so then I see stuff from, like, you know... And then, of course, there's the bottle caps that were used on the bottom of shoes by, like, children in New Orleans, like, even earlier than that. So, so yeah, well, there, we can't even agree on when the taps were put on the shoes. But I think it was it also in Europe, in, especially in England, uh, very soon after it was here, whenever that was. But it doesn't predate uh, in, in, uh, any European tap. Uh, sure. Clog dancing does not have that. River dance does not have that. Um, but uh, that's a historical point, and it's part of why we call it America's long-lost dance, because uh, that merging, however the merging was, and it certainly, a lot of it was uh, forced merging, a lot of it was not real pleasant, it was certainly, those, those were not carnival, carnival cruises coming across the Atlantic. Right. Uh, and what, what we've got now was the merging of these cultures in the, in the U.S., that began on those ships, uh, you know, and I think that it really did come together here. And, and when I flipped through the book of tap, I kind of feel my intention was to pretty much make it 50-50. But I'm appalled by this new revisionism and, and this emergence of false equivalence and, and race hatred. Sure. Yeah, no, of course. And I don't, I'm not accusing the book of tap or you of any of that. Like I, I <laughs> thank you. But I just I want to be clear because it's very easy for people now where you say one thing like, well, I didn't or I, I disagreed with this one point in the book to that book now is racist. You know what I mean? Like, I don't want oh, yeah. to, you know, I have very specific questions I, I asked you, but that I overall, I love the book and I don't I'm not accusing it of historical revisionism. Absolutely. No, no, I thank you. No, I don't I don't claim that in any way and and I was really delighted to see your interest in it and and especially uh, you know, that uh, that you said it was a not a bad tap history and that was uh, what we were aiming for, but it was uh, it's it's been really interesting for me to go back in time and remember where I was at and where Jerry and I were coming to this book and and where this culture was at at that moment in that that dead zone of the 70s of the early 70s. This brings me to my final question, right? And this is on the, the Book of Tap's philosophy of tap dance. Okay. And uh, in the Book of Tap, it, it, I'm not going to quote it, but it pretty much says that the meaning behind tap dance is that it makes people happy, and that's why it's done. And am I wrong to think that that, that sense of happiness is tied to, like, American idealism? Um... I'd say it may be stretching it a little. I'd, I'd have to dial it back and say that because our, our mission, at least mine, when I was uh, invited to, to, to write that part of the book and, and be a co-author, our mission really was presented as one of talking to literally white suburban women who were the ones who seemed to be fueling this tap revival at sure. that time. And they were doing it for happiness. As I say, this was before aerobics. This was before Jane Fonda's, you know, uh, uh, workout tapes. Right. Uh, this was before disco, and this was after the 60s, and in that vacuum uh, that uh, it was the white suburban women, just like it was, you know, it was white kids from the suburbs who brought uh, who brought the blues into rock and roll and brought it forward, and uh, that's kind of the attitude, but it certainly uh, was only one element of it, the happiness, but there was the exercise component at that time. There was the nostalgia component, and uh, we were doing, uh, working with what we had at the time and what we were seeing. I talked to a lot of people in Jerry's classes 
A lot of them, as I say, were aspiring Broadway dancers, but a lot of them were just amateurs who were taking tap for the fun of it. Were there any black students in Jerry's classes? I think there. I, I think no. I think there was one or two uh, blacks in his tap company, but I think uh, I, I have to flip through the book and look at those classes. Hang on a second. I have them in. Okay. I have the pictures. Or even nope. not just black. I mean, like, how many were there? Were there many non-white? Was it majority white? I assume. Yeah, I okay. see a couple of women of color. Okay. Uh, in these pictures, they're all in that tap patter chapter of the book. But no, this was not. Just like the uh, early blues revival, this was not an African American driven uh, revival of anything. Sure. And only later were were things taken forward. You know, uh, you talk about. Um, the philosophy of tap a lot. And I really love the way you get into these questions of hedonism and ontology. (laughs) Uh, But, you know, uh, one of the people Flo and I have crossed paths with several times in our research is Noam Chomsky. Yeah. Wow. Uh, And people think of him as this firebrand leftist um, political figure, but he was a boy genius in linguistics at Harvard and MIT starting in the fifties. And we've spoken with him in the context of communication and all our work. I, I interviewed him about the chimpanzee language uh, lessons that were going on in the 70s. And uh, But Chomsky had this theory of transformational grammar. He said that you know language was innate. It was a human imperative, what we call an imperative to communicate. And Chomsky said that from these basic genetic underpinnings, human beings of every culture and, and race and language came up with an infinite number of transformational, original crea- uh, linguistic creations. And uh, in 73, 74, when I was at, at just leaving Harvard, Leonard Bernstein uh, came to spend a year at Harvard, and he was writing his Norton lectures on uh, adapting Chomsky to music. And he talked about this uh, universal grammar of music. It's a fascinating set of lectures, and uh, there are recordings of them all. He just did an amazing job. And when I'm thinking about what you're saying about Pat, and uh, Flo also brought this forward when we're listening to your podcast mm-hmm. in the same way dance and movement is an innate human imperative mm-hmm. and from that you get a universal grammar that allows an infinite number of variations and transformations and these whether you call it the twin streams or the merging of cultures i think tap in some ways is a high point of this uh, transformational aspect of dance that is brought through uh through, uh, you know, by, by blood, sweat, and tears, it has brought forward these twin cultural streams into this kind of music that is, to me, uh, one of the foremost expressions of, uh, of the, uh, the innate human imperative for movement. Sure. Uh, in, in the Book of Tap, you, you I'm not sure if suggest is the correct word, but you, you kind of tie tap to the the popular Fred Astaire movies and the movies from like the 30s to the 50s saying like, you know, how great is it to be able to to kind of role play as these opulent <laughs> characters, you know, when they seem so carefree. This is truly like ideal America looks like. And then I, you know, I make the point that like, well, for who? Because I don't think that anyone but like a white person could read those sentences and agree with them, because what movies are they supposed to watch? Well, and you're absolutely right. And look at those movies. Uh, the uh, stare musicals were all made at the depth of the Depression in the 1930s. Right? They That's were the craziest mainly part. presented. 
mainly presented to keep people from complete despair. And what, what I refer to in the book, uh, probably a little bit slanted, is this style and elegance as the golden age of tap, the sophistication. But uh, from the photos we present in the book, too, and from the history that I was seeing, there was plenty of style and elegance and sophistication, uh, not only in American jazz and the big bands, Duke Ellington and uh, uh, Cab Calloway on film and the Nicholas Brothers. And you look at John Bubbles, there was incredible mm-hmm. style and sophistication there. But uh, clearly the, the tenor of American society and of, of culture and the arts was to more or less downplay and uh, minimize the African-American contribution and to maximize uh, what you're saying, what everybody was seeing everywhere, which were these uh, images on screens that were everywhere and largely white. And that's why one one line in in Holy Terror that stuck out to me. It's it's just a tiny one, but I think you're it's in just you're kind of describing uh, some of the tactics of Richard Vigore. Am I saying that right? Vigore. Vigore, yeah. Vigore, who one was one of the founding uh, fathers of the religious right. Right, and he was the he was the 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 money guy, or he's a list guy. Right, he was the direct mail guy. He was the mail the internet, guy. That's right. Before the internet, you had direct mail networks. Computerized direct mail was how the right wing would uh, would uh, communicate with their grassroots troops and their born again base. And in, uh, and the Democrats and the and the rest of the culture had no idea what was going out oh, through sure. this essentially dark web of of, right. of mass direct mail. But then you go through a, a a number of just kind of his tactics. And one of the tactics is, and I, this is from page 244 of Holy Terror, and it's, I quote, Blind notions of the divine nature of American nationalism and free enterprise capitalism, unquote. And that kind of stuck out to me because that is how I feel that afflicts tap dance to a degree. Like when you say in the book of tap, look to these old movies to kind of feel good about yourself. Do you think that you, when writing that, were you afflicted by a blind notion of the divine nature of American patriotism or American idealism? Uh, I certainly, no, I, that's one where I'll take issue with you. By okay. 1974, uh, way before that, a decade earlier, my uh, developing cultural and political sensibilities were nowhere near that. Uh, I was, and, and Flo was, uh, very active in the anti-war movement in the 60s and late 60s. Flo was in Grant Park in 68. Uh, I was uh, in Harvard Square when the weathermen were trashing the place and, yeah. and uh, on the Boston Common. Uh, I did not have a uh, golden view of American culture at that time. And, uh, but I do know that you know, we were just looking at what was out there in the culture, and that was the, you know, the musicals on film that was probably 99% of 99% of white America's understanding and experience of seeing tap dancing is there a definite set of america of uh, u.s americans and even when you hear me talk about quote-unquote america i'm usually careful to say u.s america because i've spent time with people in like central america and mexico and i would be i'll always say like well in america and they're like look buddy you're one of three americas <laughs> all right and so, our na- and our neighbors to the north yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, they're North America too, right? We're both North America. But like right. in Mexico, they're like, "Look, there's another. Which America are you talking about, buddy?" But I would ask you: Are there, is there a static set of American of U.S. American principles and ideals? 
Good question. A um, couple thoughts just off the top. Uh, first of all, the whole right-wing notion that has been codified as American exceptionalism that Ronald Reagan brought forward in his notions of the Soviets as an evil empire, well, he wasn't far wrong about uh, some elements there. But uh, this notion of a shining city on a hill and this connection that the religious right has made for 50, 60 years now that America, are, the Americans are God's chosen people and born-again Christians are the ones who should be have dominion over the earth and, and the American government. Uh, these are real cultural diseases that uh, may never get out of this country until we have uh, a whole, a whole bu bunch of anomalies coming together in a, in a real cultural revolution again. Um, but I think that um, uh, all, th those attitudes, and we're very careful when we speak publicly and when we write to distinguish United States from America and North America. And once we establish that, sometimes we often will refer to America, meaning the United States at that sure. time. But strictly speaking, uh, you know, those are cultural issues that are more than the U.S. has to deal with. That Americans, meaning, you know, not Canadians or Latin Americans, but citizens of the United States, uh, really have got to come to terms with. As a, as a self-identifying tap dance American, these are right on the forefront of, of, of our thoughts, too. Who knew tap dance was so political and so deep? Well, if you read the book of Tap, you will. Well, I mean, if you listen to this episode after reading the book of Tap, you will. I understand that you have uh, closing remarks. I have a postscript, a coda to this whole story well, that you I, may find uh, I, I, I I leave the final, uh, as long as you want, I leave the last word to you, sir. Well, I may want your, your response, too. Okay. Um, you made several references to Kurt Vonnegut. Kurt Vonnegut was my creative writing teacher at Harvard. Wow. And Are you we, kidding? Wow. No, we stay in contact. Uh, we became very good friends, and Flo and I became really good friends with Kurt. And up until the day he died in 2007, we stayed in contact with Kurt. But when I came to New York in 74, uh, 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 Kurt was here. He was living up in Turtle Bay, up in Midtown. And uh, he was on the uh, one of the uh, uh, contributing editors to Harper's Magazine. So I'd see him at Harper's once in a while. And we'd have lunch very often and walk around Midtown he loved to. Uh, he loved firefighters and volunteer firemen. He wrote about them a lot. So anytime we would hear a siren, we would run out of the restaurant and go chasing down the sirens and find <laughs> out where the fire was. That's amazing. But um, soon after I signed up to do the book of tap, I had lunch with Kurt, and I told him about this book, which I thought, of course, he he called it a hoot, and. Uh, <laughs> And I told him, I said, what I really want to do in this in this book is it's about this popular tap revival. I said, I really want to get the publisher to get some uh, some stick on taps, peel off taps that we could include a pair of stick on taps with oh, every copy goodness. of the book. <laughs> so people could put them on their shoes and learn to tap dance. Yeah, because there's the instruction and, at the back. Yeah, and Kurt thought that was kind of cute. Uh, and I didn't notice till a couple of years later when his comedy, his book Slapstick came out, which yeah. was 1976, that uh, at the end of chapter 26, he uses one of his recurring characters, the <laughs> corrupt lawyer, Norman yeah. Mushari. Mm -hmm. And he borrows my idea, and I just want to steal the, uh, I just want to read the last paragraph of chapter 26 of 
slapstick. Yes, please. He said, Mashari, he said, Mashari came to my attention once more, two years later, at the time I graduated from medical school at the bottom of my class, by the way, he had patented an invention of his own. There was a photograph of him and a description of his patent on a business page in the New York Times. There was a national mania for tap dancing at the time. Mushari had invented taps which could be glued to the soles of shoes and then peeled off again. A person could carry the taps in little plastic bags in a pocket or purse, according to Mushari, and put them on only when it was time to tap dance. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Wow. That's, why don't I have slapstick at home? I'm a huge Kurt Vonnegut fan. I've read every book, and I somehow for, forgot that. But I'm going to go back home and read slapstick today. <laughs> That's incredible. Well, wow. Bert got, Kurt Vonnegut stole from you. Well, he did. Well, I borrowed enough from him. But I also have to point out one other thing. When uh, we finished the book at TAP, I had lunch with Kurt. I said, Kurt, I just have to figure out who do I dedicate the book to. And Kurt said, well, you've got to always dedicate your first book to your mom. Mm. And if you look at the uh, intro page uh, page four in the book of tap, just across from the acknowledgments, I dedicated the book of tap to Kurt. Yeah. Oh, so that's the, wait, hold on one second. I have the book with me. Give me one second. Hold on. Hold on. I'm walking over here. Hold on. Hold on. Hold on. I'm on the copyright All page. Right, I'm back. I'm back. Hold on. I'm opening it. It's on the copyright page. You can see it. Hold on. Yeah, I'm on page V. I'm getting there. Just across from it. Yeah, to Kurt. So that Kurt is Kurt Vonnegut. Yes. Holy, this is blowing my mind. You're you're blowing my mind right now. I I feel like I'm snapping right now. I mean, like, (laughs) not to make light of that. That's a serious issue. But (laughs) but like when I say Flo Flo and I were uh, were out in San Diego researching uh, snapping and looking at all the cults of the '70s that that were recruiting kids on the beaches of Southern California. And we're out in this rented place, uh, this duplex we had rented in Mission Beach, and uh, I get a package in the mail. I get a letter in the mail, and uh, the girls downstairs who uh, kept our mail for us when we were out doing interviews came to me, and they showed me this envelope. And she said, is this Vonnegut on the return address? Is this Kurt Vonnegut? (laughs) I said, yeah, it's my friend. And Kurt wrote, wrote me a letter at that time thanking me for dedicating the book to him. Wow, I can't. I mean, if you would have just opened with that, I would have. I don't think I would have been able to continue because I, I would have been at a loss. I mean, this is incredible. <laughs> I have a Kurt Vonnegut tattoo on my shoulder. It's because of Kurt Vonnegut, uh, or just reading his books, that I decided to devote my life to tap dance in some capacity, right? Because I wanted to go into beer brewing for a while, and then. I was torn. Do I go into this job or do I stay with this job? Because you really can't do both and be successful and make a living. And after That's reading right. through all of Kurt Vonnegut's, he's like, you know, if you have an opportunity to do something creative, do that. There's time to do other stuff later. But if you have a passion for creativity, explore it because you'll then you could be happy. You know, you could, I don't know, you have well-being. And it was it was his words, you know, not so much from his fiction, but from reading some of his speeches that I decided, you know what, I can go into beer brewing some other time if I want to, but I can tap dance now, and I can't say that about tomorrow. And so, you know, of course, I'm in college, so I get a Kurt Vonnegut tattoo, because, you know, that's what you do when you have an epiphany in college. Uh, But yeah, but so this is, 
I mean, this is absolutely in, in, incredible that I can tie Kurt Vonnegut closer to tap dance to this book that I've had in my possession now since, like, you and know, Kurt, for 20 and, years. And Kurt ripped me off. But I have to say, Kurt <laughs> Vonnegut, he's the reason that I became a writer. Well, he's the uh, reason I, I stayed a tap dancer. I took his course, English V, and Kurt, of course, is from Indianapolis, and I grew up in Cleveland. We used to talk all the time. I'd say, Kurt, how come so many important writers have come out of the Midwest? And he said, they didn't come out of the Midwest. He said, they were catapulted out of the Midwest. (laughs) Well, I mean, is he wrong? And by that, he wasn't being unkind to the Midwest. We both loved our our origins and our time there, but he said, he said, they're either branded as communists and queers and, or run out of town. Right. He said, and that's why he said, that's why you have so many writers from the Midwest. But uh, Kurt told me one thing when I was struggling with whether I was going to go into academia or law school or become a professional uh, blues musician. And I said, Kurt, I just don't know whether I can do this as a writer. It's just a very uncertain, insecure living. He said to me, he said, don't be a writer if you possibly can't. Mm. And I think the same could be said for you as a tap dancer. Don't be a tap dancer if you possibly can't, because dance has all the perils of of writing and every other form of the arts. But Kurt was uh, stood by Flo and me the whole time. And you can see his, his blurbs on every one of our books. I mean, I'm absolutely blown away. You really did save save quite a doozy for me. I, I really appreciate this. This is, I mean, this makes my, I mean, this is actually quite, quite special for me right now to hear these stories. This is absolutely incredible. Well, Tristan, I never expected you to use Vonnegut in the adjective form of the Vonnegutian school, but uh, you nailed it. <laughs> oh, I'm a, I'm a disciple of the Vonnegutian you know, the, the sun, moon cult of, uh, you call it what you want, but if Kurt Vonnegut says it, I'm implied to do it. So He was an incredible guy, his fiction and his nonfiction, just Absolutely. remarkable. And, and it was a privilege for me and Flo to know him and spend so much time with him and for him to be on our side through uh, some of the struggles and conflicts we've had because of the nature of the work we do. Wow. Is there anything else? you would like to to add? I don't think there could possibly be anything else after that. I, 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 would, I, I want to thank you, Tristan, Real, literally. In 45 years, you're the first interview I've ever done for the Book of Tap, and I want to thank your listeners. I can't imagine they're going to wade through uh, this long conversation we've had, but however you want to chop it up and uh, whatever you want to convey to them, uh, I'm grateful for your interest and to everybody for listening and for really finding this book I wrote so long ago to still be of interest and value today. Well, don't underestimate us tap dancers. We are completionists, as you might find. Uh, and if well, you're in an, yes, I'm so, I don't, I don't mean to interrupt you. You're in a new platinum age, as you call it. And, and thanks to you and all these people who, uh, I'd like to think are in some way children of the book of tap that, uh, you may make the, uh, the tap age become double platinum before long. Well, uh, tap dancers, we love being double platinum. Uh, that's actually an inside joke among tap dancers because at dance competitions, last place will be first place, and then second place will be like platinum, and then first place will be like double platinum. It's a whole thing. Anyways. I, I did not know that. Well, shoot, man. We had a real good... Um, 
we had a real touching ending until I ruined it there with some tap dance trivia. But well, we'll, well see. You can cut it out if you want. <laughs> I just, I just do want to thank you. It's been a, a delight for me to talk with you, and uh, and I'll uh, I'll be really surprised if if your listeners are going to want to wade through all this. But uh, it's uh, it's really been fun talking with you. Well, the pleasure is all mine. And to my listeners, if you would like to check out the Book of Tap, there are copies circulating on the Internet. Get on Amazon, get on eBay, find them, or check your libraries. I can confirm once again there is a copy of the Book of Tap at the Harold Washington Library in Chicago, Illinois. So come on out, or it is available on archive.org if you know the right keywords to look for. If you'd like to read any other of Jim Siegelman's books with his partner, Flo Conway, again, go to stillpointpress.net where you can pick up Snapping, Holy Terror, and a, a story of Norbert Wiener. Jim Siegelman, thank you so much for appearing on this episode of Gasps from a Dying Art Farm. Tristan, thank you. It's been a pleasure. Right. And best wishes to you and all your audience and to everyone as... Uh, as uh, who, somebody in Book of Tap said, just keep on tapping. Right on. Thank you. Take care. Right, bye-bye. Bye-bye. Who's the one who invented tap? Were they white or were they black? Did it start in the Caribbean? Or do we not trust that European? Some of them I do. Can't you see all this history is killing me? Why don't we start on three? Why do we start on four? I know it's hard to grasp, but it's a gasp. From a dying art form